Hi, Stefan. Hello, how are you? Good. I can't see you yet, but I'm guessing it's still loading. Hold on. Ah, and perfect. You should see me now. <laughs> perfect. Yeah, excellent. Um, super excited to be chatting with you today, Stefan. I have to say, you might be the perfect guest to be chatting about happiness. And I want to refer to your Twitter tagline. I don't know if you know it for heart <laughs> <laughs> or if you have forgotten it after some years. But you wrote there that you have been turning yourself into a design project to see if you can make yourself happier through uh, experimentation. So I found that very interesting. And you even made a movie out of it a few years ago. And sure. in that movie, one can see even in the trailer that you go around sort of in a costume of a pink rabbit. Uh, and I think that is Lou's face also on, on the costume. <laughs> so do you think that one needs to be willing to be a little ridiculous or to not take oneself seriously in order to, to be happy? Well, I think that the, the pink costume idea for the trailer was really all about doing something that you normally don't do, like new experiences and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, getting out of your comfort zone. Meaning in the film, really, I tried out three different strategies that psychologists, cognitive positive psychologists that I trusted recommended that would be the most efficient way to make uh, <laughs> to improve your own levels of happiness. And these were meditation, cognitive therapy and drugs, meaning mm. legal drugs, SSRI, <laughs> uh, SSRIs and things like that. And I thought, OK, I'll try all of these things out three months mm. each and see what's coming out of it and get at the same time, the structure, kind of like a three-part structure for our film out of it. And it turned out that this, but it's turned into an eight-year project. <laughs> uh, it definitely, of all the projects I've ever done, this made me the longest unhappy while trying it out. Okay. That's interesting not so, to know. <laughs> not because of the strategies, I have to say, but because of the difficulties of filmmaking. It was okay. just so, it was so much more difficult and so much more exhausting to create the film that's watchable. Mm -hmm. Because I found out that we as an audience, including myself, are unbelievably spoiled by <laughs> film in a way that we are not necessarily spoiled by other worlds of the arts. But in film, everybody expects that it has something to do with their lives. So mm. you don't get extra points from an audience. <laughs> and it was just, it just turned out to be difficult. But the experiments themselves, I actually found that all three were, all three had their advantages. Mm -hmm. And if I now, I mean, the film has long been done and I'm, I neither meditate nor take drugs, <laughs> nor, uh, uh, or, nor I'm in therapy. But I would say if I would now be at a crossroad again, and I think I have to improve something, I would pick therapy as the most efficient mm. of the three. 
So to go back a little bit on what you were saying, would you say that if the same experience would not have been part of making a movie and the pressure and the difficulties around that, would you feel like this would have been a happiest experience, happier experience or it would still have been maybe difficult? Well, I would say this. Uh, I think it's, it's different from each of them. Uh, in the on the drugs, uh, I've uh, in order to finance the movie, I did <laughs> talks. So basically, I did a talk about the movie in progress. I think I did about 150 of those talks. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> and that's you know I got paid for those talks, and that's basically paid for the film. And in doing those talks, I of course talked about. The, my Lexapro, my drug-taking experiment, mm. and after the talks, people almost, almost all of us came up to me and told me, well, they're on Lexapro too, or they're on another SSRI, and of mm. course I would ask them, so how is it? And I've heard absolutely every single possible outcome. Okay. So for some people it worked in the beginning, for some, for some at the end, for some it in the middle, for some it didn't work at all, for some it worked fantastically, meaning every possible outcome was part of that. So it, it seemed to me that even from what I've heard directly, it really seems to work for some and for, for others not at all. Mm. In my case, it was confusing too because when I started my drug, uh, my drug taking, something else important in my life happened, meaning I fell in love. And so it was so very confused confusing. the data a little bit. <laughs> exactly. Am I falling so hard for this woman because of the drug taking? Or so there was all of these, uh, of course, my experiments were by no means scientific considering mm -hmm. I had a group of one. So all of this, of course, was very much personal, ultimately. Mm -hmm. But I would think that also from the data that I've seen out of the three, the cognitive therapy seems to be consistently the most successful. Mm -hmm. So this still felt useful despite, yeah, again, the context of, of the movie. And I was asking you this question because I think more and more it was already present when you were doing the movie, but even more now we expose our lives online a lot more or to the general public a lot more. Yeah. And we see that the younger generation, they seem to have a harder time maybe being happy, even though there's more resources on happiness and the more people showcase how happy they are or how great their life are, the <laughs> least they seem to have a good life. Um, so do you have maybe a personal perspective on this? Do you feel that happiness has been impacted by the fact that you're sort of a public figure and now or not so much impacted by it? Well, uh, I think that there is a very big difference between exposing personal things in a movie mm -hmm. and exposing them on social media. Mm. Huge difference, huge. And uh, I can explain why I think that the two are almost separate. Because if I expose myself on a movie, I make one big thing that I work on for a very long time, mm. and then I put it out there, 
and I do get feedback on it, but it comes in a very different way than if I expose little pieces of myself daily on social media. Mm. And I think that and it's funny because the my scientific advisor in the film, Jonathan <laughs> Haidt, is actually working very diligently now. He's at NYU, at Tisch, and he's working, like I think his the book that he's working on, but also his last book, book were very, very much concerned with the negative effects on social media, mm. both on teenagers that you mentioned, specifically on women, but also on our political landscape in general. Mm. Mm. And I think that the numbers that he has are much better on the negative outcome on 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 teenagers, mm -hmm. he can't quite prove, you know, in real scientific experiments, the negative outcome on our social, on our political landscape. But mm -hmm. as far as how social media has a negative or specifically is, you know, responsible for depression and self-harm in teenagers, I think that the numbers are very solid. Mm. And, uh, but as I said, it's quite a different thing. I think it has something to do with the fact that when I did this, I was well into my adult years. I mean, <laughs> I was in my 50s, mm. early 50s, uh, which is different than if you do this with 13. Mm. Uh, but also, I think from talking to him, and uh, the book is not out yet, but just from talking to him, I think one of the worst aspects of social media is when you post and then constantly check what the reactions mm. to your post are. All of these things are not possible in a film. Yeah. So I think that I avoided most of those effects mm. uh, that didn't really bother me. Uh, and I do have to say that when I started the film, when I had the idea I could do a film about happiness mm -hmm. and then only a half or a year later it actually became a film about my own happiness because <laughs> I realized that I'm not It's too really, hard. <laughs> but, it, but I wasn't really in a position to do a film on general happiness considering I'm not mm. a psychologist, I haven't studied this, I'm not really an expert on everybody's mm. happiness. So I literally out of necessity reduced it to my own to my own happiness because I felt I'm an expert at least on that one and I can you know mm. talk Study that. <laughs> properly about it and but of course the some sort of desire in the back of my mind was maybe I even get happier because of it mm. because of the dealing with that subject and I can say that I actually did, but mm. not immediately. And strangely, by realizing something that I already knew before <laughs> I even started the film, but because of the eight years that I dealt with this subject, I wound up not only understanding, but understanding it with my mind, mm. but being able to actually live it. 
And I think this is the extreme heart of the problem of all self-help books and mm. of all films about happiness and documentaries, including mine, is that as an audience member or as a reader of one of those books, your engagement with the subject is just by far not tight enough mm. for you to actually be able to lift this. Most self-help books don't really suffer from bad content. Many self-help books say the same things or very similar things mm. to what a therapist would tell you. The reason the therapist has, has a much bigger, big, bigger chance of an impact is because it's a tighter connection. Mm. And you have more structure also with this more structure person. Is, there is more repetition. There is a bigger chance for you to actually be able to implement these things truly in your life. Mm. And the thing that I understood ultimately after eight years, even though I read it in Jonathan Haidt's book as his conclusion in the book, was basically that you can't really run after happiness, meaning like you can't mm. really directly try to become happier. But what you can try is you can look at all of your relationships, the close ones like your partner, your family, uh, your best friends, the medium ones and the far away ones, meaning acquaintances. Mm. And you can try to lift those relationships onto a level where then afterwards mm. certain happinesses can come out from in between. And you can do this, try to do the same thing with your work, mm -hmm. eliminate things that stand, that, that are not on that level and push the things that, and push elements of your work onto an elevated level where certain happinesses can have a chance to come through in between. And yeah. you can try to do the same thing with something that's bigger than you. You know, have to be people. a little bit sneaky, I guess. And if you're like, okay, I'm going to pursue happiness and you try everything, it's hard to, to attain that because you're trying out that goal and it's not really a goal <laughs> that is exactly. quantifiable. And yes. But if you do the actions, basically, that are supposed to bring you happiness, then you have, I guess, a greater chance without being attached maybe to, to the outcome or tracking every day. Okay, am I happier today? Am I happier <laughs> today? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, but even this, what I just mentioned, those three things, lifting your relationships, your mm. work and something that's bigger than you. I knew that, baby. I read the book. So I yes. knew that <laughs> and it didn't help me at all. And so very similar, I think, that to listener of this podcast, it mm. might seem logical, but it doesn't mean that you are getting it will actually lift your overall level. In my case, it needed the eight years of trying of it out maybe the subject uh, mm. that I truly got it. And I think two years or three years after the film was done, I was in Mexico City on sabbatical. And I was doing really well. And mm. I really well not for a happy moment, but like really well for weeks on no mm. end, for, for weeks and weeks. 
And when I thought of why this is, I realized, oh my God, I actually did what Jonathan was recommending. All the things. <laughs> I lifted my relationships up. I lifted my work up and I'm working on something that is actually bigger than me. In that case, mm. it was a big subject of beauty. And so uh, I, I got it. And mm. that doesn't mean that I'm now constantly happy. I'm not. But I would think, and I don't do daily levels anymore. I don't write my curves. I don't do those lists anymore. But I'm pretty sure, I'm actually I'm positive, mm -hmm. that overall, let's say, that overall, if I look at 2022, that 2022 was a better year than my average years were 10 years ago. And I think that has something to do with this idea, I can lift those three things up and I mm -hmm. can look at those areas and eliminate things that are lower and push things that are higher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's an element that keep coming back a lot, whether it's on happiness or I think other sort of self-help or personal development that Okay, you can have the inspiration from the books, from the other people. And that's why I try with, you know, these interviews to see you on a personal level. How did you reach that? And how for you, was there kind of a moment that you felt, okay, I have all this knowledge and now I'm going to apply it? Was it more like over time you started to realize that you had started to prioritize maybe more your relationship that you took? more time to do things that you enjoyed more. How did this switch sort of happen for you from the moment that you went from this inspiration, you know, all the things you should do and to waking up one day thinking, well, I actually started to do them now and I do feel happier and this is working. <laughs> but uh, uh, it, I think that the first long time that made me realize it's working was in Mexico mm -hmm. City. Mm -hmm. And from that experience, I thought, okay, I really should push this mm -hmm. and push it further. And so over time, and of course, I was in the very lucky and privileged position to mm -hmm. be able to do that also. Like over time, I could say, okay, um, these part of my work, let me look at the work, I'm not doing anymore. In my case, I'm a designer. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'm not doing any more commercial work. Not mm -hmm. necessarily because I hate it, more because I felt I've done enough of this in my life. It doesn't mm -hmm. really, it doesn't There's really no spark. the same interest <laughs> than, than it used to. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this was about four, four and a half, five years ago. I'm, on, I'm literally only doing work that I find more meaningful, mm. which really, in that case, and there was a big subject, there was another aha moment in Rome, where I realized that there are really two different worlds, two, two different possibilities to look at the world, which is mm -hmm. one is short term, which is the way that all media looks at it. Uh, you know, what is happening right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other one is long term, where it's where I look at the world from a 50 year or 100 year or 200 year perspective. And those worldviews 
have the extreme opposite result. Mm. Meaning if I look at the world from a short pers- short-term perspective, almost everything is negative. Mm-hmm. And there's many reasons for that, partially my own brain, because my This is what we're trained to do, to focus yes, on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's much more interesting to look at negative things than positive things from you know our prehistoric ancestors that needed to be kept safe. Mm. But there is also as many other reasons, there is uh, negative things work really well with short-term media because negative mm. things happen very quickly. Uh, catastrophe scandals, uh, all of that stuff happens quickly and works super well for short-term yeah. media. Uh, long uh, positive things in the world tend to go, tend to increase very, very slowly and mm. don't really work for short-term media. But if you, and I found that Specifically, I'm a communication designer. I found that unbelievably exciting that it's literally the opposite point of view comes mm-hmm. out if you look at it long term. So in the last five years or four years, every project that we've worked on had something to do with long term thinking. Mm-hmm. And I find that because not a lot of other people are working on this in my area, nobody uh, mm-hmm. in the in the world of communication design so I find that interesting and I think it's the kind of things that I'm that it's the kind of thing that I'm supposed to be doing mm-hmm. and I can report back that <laughs> little pieces of happiness tend to are coming come from it <laughs> out of it uh, tend to come out of that uh, on a pretty regular basis mm-hmm. That makes a great bridge with, I think, your area of design. And right now, as you can see, I'm no expert of of design. I have very little knowledge of design, so excuse my very boring uh, background. But I think a lot of research over the years have shown that generally people tend to be happier in nature, for example. So do you think we tend to be unhappy right now as human beings because A, the world is badly designed, and then should we design the world to look like nature? But I would, there's a couple of things there. My own feeling is, is that we really, like the the beauty of our surroundings mm-hmm. plays a role in how we feel and how we behave. Now, Nature can be really ugly. That's true too. <laughs> and it can be unbelievably dangerous. And so if you're in a storm on the sea, on the edge that your that your that your ship is sinking or mm-hmm. is in super danger, you're not gonna feel very good, even Probably though not. you're completely <laughs> immersed in danger. We still look if, pretty happy, pretty beautiful. <laughs> it could look great, but it uh, you're not gonna feel great. No, that's for sure. <laughs> and uh, if you're in a burned out in a in a burned out forest in Canada right now, where the CO2 levels are crazy mm. high, you're in nature. True. <laughs> uh, but you're not gonna feel all that fantastic. Mm. And I think the same is true for cities, meaning that 
you can be in a fantastic gorge on a fantastic roof deck overlooking the entire New York skyline. You're mm. in the center of the city and you feel fantastic and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Or you can be in some stinking industrial hole that's polluted somewhere <laughs> in the uh, in the northern in northern China and you feel terrible. Mm. So I think that the question, at least for me, is not so much if I'm in nature or in a city. The question is, are you in a good environment or in a bad environment? But the mm -hmm. fact also is that if you do live in an urban space, basically everything that surrounds you, including the bits of nature, including the park <laughs> and the potted plants, but also, of course, what you're wearing, the chair, the office, the the stuff that you have on your wall, the building, the street that you're in, the neighborhood that you live in, every single part of that has been designed by a designer. Mm -hmm. And this could this if you this can be done well or it can be done terrible. Mm -hmm. And this and I see this every day in my neighborhood and I see the differences. This has demonstratively a difference on how I feel and how I behave. You know, mm. a, an example that I've given in the past very close to me is the High Line. Mm -hmm. uh, friends New of York, mine New have York designed Highline, this. <laughs> Liz and Rick have, uh, you know, were the architects that designed this. And if I go onto the High Line, even though it's unbelievably crowded and there is sometimes specifically now in some thousands and thousands of people on it, you will never see anybody throwing a piece of paper or a plastic cup away on the High Line. Mm, that's true. They, they will do this in the meatpacking district, which is, <laughs> you know, five yards from the High Line. Or Hell's Kitchen, just, just Absolutely. above. Absolutely, <laughs> totally. But they won't do it on the High Line. They will behave differently. Mm. You will also see noticeably that the people walk slower, and they are in a better mood than they are in Hell's Kitchen. Mm. Now, of That's course, there is a slightly different reason why you go on the High Line and why you just basically run in Hell's Kitchen. But the behavior is very, very clearly differently. Mm. And if I'm on the High Line, I notice that I feel differently. Or another example, I don't have scientific... Uh, proof of that but so the, but my own feeling is that uh if i look at laguardia airport which mm -hmm. really truly was the worst airport in the country <laughs> that's demonstrably meaning with the biggest delays and you know just awful okay. and it has been renovated you can see you can feel that there is a better mood in the mm. people in laguardia now than it was three years ago it's like literally feelable and I'm 100% sure if we would have done this study, you could prove of it. Before and after. Yeah, before and after. And I think I saw a study from the from UK scientists that did a study here in New York on Houston Street mm -hmm. where they asked people for directions and they asked it on a block with a lot of small old uh, uh, 
historic facades mm -hmm. and they asked it the next block where there is one new glass facade and people were less helpful in front of the glass <laughs> facade than they were in the more uh, sort of like uh, diverse uh, broken up small facades. Mm -hmm. So it our environments be literally uh, influence our behaviors. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the same that would be true also in nature. We will behave differently in a burnt out forest than we do in a lush, gorgeous one. Yeah, I lived a few years back in New York myself. And first I lived in Hell's Kitchen because yeah. I had never lived in New York before, didn't know the city whatsoever. And so I thought, yeah, Hell's Kitchen seems close to everything. <laughs> and it was a terrible, yeah. terrible experience. And moving to Wall Street after felt a lot more like peaceful vibe and the kind of environment I could be in and to refer back also to your example of LaGuardia Airport. Um, I flew there only once I think and I was really surprised that they had um, comfort dogs I think going around. So while I was waiting at the airport maybe it was before the renovation they would go around with this dog that was supposed to make you feel a little happier before <laughs> before your flight. So I guess it was a little bit designed in, in this way to, to make sure that uh, people could feel a little happier. Um, generally, for you to have some elements in your life that were really taking away from your happiness before and that you have managed now to either completely eliminate or somewhat eliminate from, okay. from your life? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in the work stuff I mentioned, mm -hmm. um, I actually took the advice of a friend who said that he went through his digital calendar mm -hmm. and looked at all the meetings that he had in that year and wrote a plus or a minus. And if it was a really terrible meeting, he wrote two minuses on it. And then if if it turned out that he was meeting the same people mm -hmm. with two minuses, he eliminated those people. He mm -hmm. tried not to meet them if it's possible. Mm -hmm. And I did that and I was actually surprised to see that in the year before, there was only a single person that had two minuses. <laughs> and yes, You had already uh, done pretty I, well uh, in your... I engineered it that I don't have to meet that person anymore. And mm -hmm. I'm not, not I'm, I don't meet that single, that person anymore. And it's not even that that person is a particularly awful person, mm -hmm. I think. I, no, I don't think so. I think that the way that the two of us interacted was not good. I'm sure it wasn't good for him either. Mm -hmm. So uh, out of my life and... Uh, <laughs> better for it yeah yeah that's good to know and it makes me think also of the moment you started let's say officially your experience on happiness you already had had quite a lot of success in your life by many of society's metrics do you think that one needs to be sort of already in a comfort place to be able to experience with happiness or on the other hand if you're 
already not successful, you have nothing to lose and you may as well experience with everything to try to be happy first? Well, I mean, I think your basic needs will have to be satisfied first. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if you look at Maslow's pyramid, you have to be able to breathe, you have to be able to eat, to drink, mm. to be housed properly. If you're homeless, you're not going to think about how What's to... What's my quest? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so I think that for sure your basic needs will have to be fulfilled mm -hmm. because you're not... Uh, yeah. Uh, otherwise, it's not possible. But I think once that is done, mm -hmm. I think you, I think then everybody, yeah, I think then you can work on this. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what was for you your sort of level of cons of comfort? So now we could say that, oh, I don't know, if I'm not making one million per year, then you know, my basic needs are not met, or if I don't have a rooftop in Manhattan, my basic needs are not met. How would you evaluate this for you that you felt like, okay, now I have, let's say enough, because when you're also very successful or you have comfort, then you might be afraid to lose it all. Or when you go on a sabbatical for one year, you could be thinking, well, right now I have a lot of success. I'm going to put this all aside and I trust that it's going to be good for me, but what if it's not so i think a lot of people struggle with this idea of okay now i have this comfort but i need more and then i will stop or be searching for happiness instead of just success i mean i think that we all need a certain amount of ability to overcome our fears mm -hmm. in order to put a portion of newness into our lives that we all need. Mm. I mean, ultimately, when I did the research on, on beauty, uh, it became very clear when I talked to a good number of scientists that by and large, we think of things as beautiful that we already know mm. because if it if we if if we know it it does it hasn't eaten us so it <laughs> might be quite good but to that to that thing that we already know we mm -hmm. all want a certain amount of newness mm. that can that newness depends on the context that we see it in and how we feel if we feel very very confident. We want a larger part of newness. If we feel iffy and a little anxious, that newness is very is much smaller. Mm -hmm. I believe that as soon as I heard it, because that's exactly how my clients always reacted. When mm -hmm. their business was doing well, they had they were quite gutsy and we could try out really new things. If their business wasn't doing well, they wanted to do what worked three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. And now would you? Oh, sorry, go no, ahead. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> I was just gonna jump a little bit on that. And would you say that with aging, your let's say sources of happiness have changed, or do you find that they remain very consistent with what basically research is is showcasing? With as you were mentioning, you know, relationship with people and having a meaningful work or sort of impact on the world, this kind of aspects. Well, I know that in general, like there is proper research done on on aging 
And mm -hmm. in general, old people are a little bit happier than young people. And I think that comes from having done a lot from experience of maybe not taking everything that seriously because you've been through it all. Uh, and I would think that would be the case for myself as well. Mm -hmm. Many people, though, think they think that they were happier earlier or that times specifically. I mean, I think there was an article in today's New York Times about uh, okay. from Danny Gilbert. Did you read it? Danny no, Gilbert no, and I his haven't. research partner <laughs> at, at Harvard. And basically what they thought was that there is a uh, that the things that were bad in our past mm -hmm. become milder in the uh, in our in our memory, mm. and they but they the show they, like, they, they, they can prove it, while the good stuff remains remains good. Mm. So that there is a bias that we think that oh the bad things weren't that bad. Uh, but the good stuff remains good, so meaning like things used to be better in, mm. in earlier times. But if you actually then check, uh, then check that is not the case. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if we would actually track along the process and, and along life, we would probably see that people are <laughs> not as happy as they are maybe recording. <laughs> But yes. you were mentioning also from the beginning when we talked about your documentary that you don't really do anymore uh, the three things that you experimented yeah. with during this this time. What do you have in your maybe daily life that would be small things that help you maintain your happiness? You've mentioned different things with choosing your your work. Do you have maybe more, let's say, trivial things that <laughs> that bring you uh, small batches of, of happiness? Well, I have one thing that's non-trivial, I said, but that's extremely important, <laughs> is that there is something that I'm working on that's really part of my work, but it's also part of my life because <laughs> as a designer, these these boundaries are much more difficult to to separate mm. because you know I don't uh, leave my job. And then after five, I'm not a designer anymore. I don't think about ideas anymore. <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, uh, I think that this eliminating the commercial work and just mm -hmm. working on the long-term thinking, I am working on something that I find is meaningful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's extremely central. So I actually believe that by communicating that in the long term, through different ways, I mean, literally mm -hmm. from, I don't know, this glass that we designed for an Austrian country, uh, for an Austrian company, to the watch that I'm wearing, to bicycle paths that we've designed, to an exhibition that just closed uh, in Tribeca in New York. Mm -hmm. There's many, many, many things that ultimately all communicate one thing, as in, if you look at the world from a long term perspective, we actually live in the best possible times. Mm. And that doesn't mean that I think everything is hunky-dory, which it clearly isn't. But I think it's more likely that we can change the things that are wrong 
mm. from a platform that we already achieved some stuff than from a platform of doom and gloom. Mm. And I truly, you can of course dispute this, but I myself <laughs> truly believe this, which means that I, I find it meaningful, which means that when things don't go that well, which they still do, <laughs> uh, yesterday morning I worked on one of these projects mm -hmm. and it didn't really yield the results that I wanted. You know, not the correct kind of idea came. I was mm. sort of a little stuck. I tried again, I was still stuck. But because I believe that overall it's meaningful, Hmm. I don't have to immediately question what I'm working on. Well, let's say if I would have continued, I don't know, to work on a branding project hmm. that we used to do 10 years ago, uh, and I would, I would be in the same situation that I was yesterday, I would immediately think, oh my God, why am I working on this stupid <laughs> branding project? I've already done 20 of these. Why am I still working on that? That's stuff? the point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I do believe, so I think that that's a, that's, that's a thing that is quite responsible mm -hmm. for the fact that I believe 2023 overall Mm -hmm. so far, but also for the rest of the year, is ultimately going to be a better year than, let's say, 1983. When I was 1983, I was in high school learning mm -hmm. things that I was completely uninterested <laughs> in. So yeah. would you say that now your designs and your art are your way to make people happy or do you find it has another purpose? I think that it's uh, the way I think about design is that a good piece of design should help somebody mm -hmm. and should delight somebody. And if I can do both of those things with a piece of design, I made a good piece of design. Mm -hmm. And here and there, I get feedback that I was able to do that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's the goal. I don't think that, well, obviously, not every person will take that away from the <laughs> piece that I designed, but that's definitely that would be the goal. Yeah. Mm. And do you have one specific design that has made you very happy to create in the process of creation? Well, it's going to be a lame answer, but actually <laughs> it's the whole, it's that series, yes. I think that mm. the process is incredibly delightful for me because right now, let's say, I'm doing, like one of the strategies that I'm doing is I buy 200-year-old paintings, two or 300-year-old <laughs> paintings, and I put new inserts into them, into those old paintings that are ultimately data visualizations that show a particular thing having improved. Okay. And that process, the buying, 
the, re the, the, the restoration, the inserting, the design of the inserts, the composition, the choosing of the colors, the supervising of the making, mm -hmm. the organizing of the exhibition, the being at the exhibition, including the selling of the pieces is overall a more delightful process than let's say the processes that I used to be involved in in design. Mm -hmm. So I would say, look, we just, we just uh, finalized a book that has all that work going ah, in there. Ah, yes, I have seen it, I think, uh, some pictures online. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're basically it's, got, it's not out yet. It's, I think it's, it's possible to pre-order it on Amazon, but it's not out yet, it's coming in September. But the entire content of the book including the creation of the book itself mm -hmm. was was very positive. There mm -hmm. were, of course, times, of course, like, you know, when the publisher said, no, oh, you have to recheck <laughs> all of those back matter, all of those footnotes. And I had to spend another dozens and dozens of hours checking where did that data really come from? which I have to admit was not delightful and I hated <laughs> it. Uh, but overall, it's been very good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And very clearly, uh, very clearly more enjoyable than let's say my work was five years ago when mm, not because I think the work was boring because it wasn't but because I've done that sort of thing over and over again, it just mm -hmm. wasn't exciting anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, so having kind of the freedom to do whatever you want, but still having some constraints into it makes sort of the, the project or everything still be, be enjoyable. Yeah. Um, and of course, I put, even in this project, there's many constraints that I mm -hmm. put in there because I ultimately, I'm a big believer in constraints. I, do, I couldn't get up in the morning and sit on my table and say, okay, today I do whatever I want. It's a free day. It's not possible. <laughs> yes, it's not possible. I think it's that uh, this series, you know, called Now is Better, mm. lives with very tight constraints. Like there's very, there is rules to it that I then sometimes break and work against but there's definitely limitations to it. Mm. Some something you've used um, since I know in your TED talk you were talking about taking your sabbatical every seven year and having quite a diligent <laughs> schedule that you had created yeah. at some point. Is this something that you developed at that moment and felt okay? I really need this structure to be happy. Is this still something you continue to have? Uh, because a lot of people who, you know, have demanding corporate jobs feel like, oh, if I could, you know, have all the freedom in my life and, you know, be able to do whatever for one year, I would not do a schedule. <laughs> but so what would be your kind of your personal take on that to say, okay, maybe you do need, you know, some, some structure and some constraints? I feel that to a certain extent, we all need it. Mm -hmm. Meaning every person who creates anything, artists, filmmakers, authors, designers, uh, 
archaeologists that I talk to, and I talk to a good number, have have a structure mm. and have absolute limitations. Like uh, even the craziest of musicians that <laughs> might have been drug addicts or so have a very tight set of rules for themselves mm. of what kind of song they would allow themselves to write, what kind of subject matter, and mm. what is a song that fits within their genre and what isn't. Then, of mm. course, you have to fight against these borders then again. <laughs> but And sometimes go completely outside of those borders. Uh, but in general, there still is a structure. And mm. uh, even... If I if I look at writers or they most of them even have a daily structure like I mm. work from this time to that time on new material and reread and check and improve from this time to this time material that I did three days ago or so on and mm. so forth. I think that there is much of this going on and of course there's this fabulous quite famous quotes from Duke Ellington, uh, I don't need inspiration, I need deadlines. Uh, <laughs> Some discipline. Goes along those lines, exactly. Yeah. All right. And I think, especially in the younger generation also, we see a little bit two trends of some people who feel like, no, freedom, and I don't want any constraints, and some others that decide to put a lot of constraints and, and a lot of discipline um, on themselves. Do you have maybe a last advice that you would take from your experiments and your, your personal uh, sort of journey with happiness to, to share with people young or not so young who, who are on their own journey? Hmm. I mean, that's extremely open. Uh, <laughs> I think I would need some constraints, some constraints. Uh, <laughs> to be able to give there, uh, to give some some proper advice. Uh, mm. It's, I mean, basically, if you're saying, what advice do you have for people young and old? Uh, <laughs> for anybody. <laughs> okay, I will try to think of a creative constraint. So let's say, if I'm a person who wants to design a happy life for my future kids, is there something I can think about or already put into action that hopefully should make the design of their life happier? Well, I mean, I think that those future kids are very, very much likely looking at all evidence from the past mm -hmm. already fantastically off. Okay. Because if I look at 2023, in mm -hmm. comparison to 1923 or in comparison to 1823. Almost anything that's important to us humans, as in, we are much healthier than mm. we were in 1923. We eat much better food and are much better nourished than we were in 1923. We have chances that we live in a democracy are much higher than, than, than they were. Chances that we are living in peaceful times rather than in a mm. war are much better. Uh, so in many, many ways, we already live a much better life. 
And in 1923, all of the things I just mentioned were much better than they were in 1823. And in 1823, they were much better than in 1723. So the chances that the future kids are going to be better off in 50 years than we, than we are now are very high. So, so I wouldn't I think, need to do anything. I, I think that already, to be happier. already I am jealous of those kids because let's say in 50 years, when I am not going to be alive, I'm 61 right now, so the chances are very, very slim that I'm going to be alive in 50 years. <laughs> there, there are but some, I, there are some. But I'm totally positive <laughs> that they're going that the times will be absolutely fascinating and that mm -hmm. they are going to live a better life than I'm doing it right now. Mm -hmm. So the advice that I would take personally from this is maybe that we need to be hopeful about the future and this is maybe the best gift that we can give to other generation would that be a good way maybe to, not to sum up but to take away I from, would uh, from your answer? So. yes absolutely yeah yeah okay yeah. perfect thank you <laughs> thank you so much i'm already coming to my last question and i think it's an yeah. important uh question i'll ask to ask at the end which is, who do you think is the happiest person that you know? And this person can be someone you know personally and that you talk to regularly, or it can be someone you don't know that well. The happiest person that I know would be probably my sister, Christina. She's my oldest sister. Uh, she's okay. 10 years older than me. And I think, and I don't think that would work for everybody, but I think a large, part of her happiness, well, a good, some part of her happiness comes because she's genetically, I'm sure she was born genetically inclined to be on the happier side of life. So that's a part of it. And another <laughs> part is that she is extremely helpful to her surroundings. Okay. And she derives an incredible amount of joy out of being helpful to her daughters, to her grandkids, to uh, uh, to her friends, mm -hmm. and definitely to me. And that really increases her overall level of well-being. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think ultimately this goes back again to meaning. Mm -hmm. that she finds it meaningful to be helpful. And so... Uh, that just really works for her. But I think just on a on a rational level, if I look around and can say who is honestly answering my question <laughs> on a almost constant level when I ask so how you're doing, when mm -hmm. I'm doing great things are fantastic, it's Christina, yeah. Hmm. I always ask to ask the, always like to ask this question because usually if I can Ask someone, okay, who's one of the most successful person you know? We usually have a pretty easy answer that comes to mind, but generally with happy people, it's a little harder. But sorry, the great sign that a you can spot a person pretty fast, pretty easily, and that it's yep. someone that is you know very close to to you as well. Um, maybe you will agree that usually the more happy people we have around us, the easier also it gets to ourselves be a bit more uplifted. For sure, it's contagious, yes. 
Yeah. All right. Perfect. Thank you, uh, Stefan. Thank you Wonderful. for your advice and your extra insight on happiness from a perspective a little bit on uh, design and uh, beauty today. Um, do you have pleasure. one last comment or last advice that you want to, to give? I think we pretty much went through it fine. So, uh, uh, yeah, uh, no. enjoy the rest of the day. <laughs> Thank you.